The following message is brought to you by Baltimore Bible Church. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So now let's open our Bibles and follow along as we loose the scriptures and let them speak. Good afternoon, BBC. I have the honor of introducing our speaker, our guest speaker this afternoon, Dr. Joe Bobby earned his Doctor of Ministries degree from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and his Master's from the Master's Seminary. He's been preaching at Calvary Community Church in Somerset, New Jersey since 1985. Uh, he, has, he was born and raised in New Jersey and he has long been dedicated to serving New Jerseyans by faithfully preaching God's word in the church while working to deliver the gospel to the surrounding communities. He first came to know the Lord while serving as a United States Marine aboard the USS Saratoga. And after his tour, Joe entered Northeastern Bible College where he completed his BA in Biblical Literature and began preaching evangelistic messages in nearby churches. Joe and his wife, Janae, a biblical counselor, live in Somerset, New Jersey. They have four children. And uh, I got this right off of his uh, church's website. When he's not studying or teaching, Joe enjoys weightlifting, eating Thai food, and showing hospitality. He's a passionate preacher committed to expository preaching, explaining the meaning of the scriptures, including its charges, its exhortations, its warnings, as intended by the original authors, and he does this through the careful study of the surrounding context, the historical background, and the grammatical structure in original languages. And he also believes that all of the scriptures both the Old and the New Testament speak of Jesus Christ, who came into the world to save all those who would believe from the penalty of their sin. Now, I, I, I got this last bit of his bio this morning from Pastor George, and he wanted us all to know that Joe Bobby was a spiritual older brother for Pastor George's pastor and mentor, Tom Leak, when Tom was going through the Master's Seminary. Amen. So, Pastor Joe... Thank you very much, Chuck, right? Thank you for that introduction. And um, I didn't know the website said that much, but <laughs> I don't usually go to the website. And, uh, but let me just uh, let you know a little bit about myself when it comes to George, your pastor. Uh, I met George probably uh, when he was uh, a freshman in college at Hope Bible Church. And um, when I was preaching there for Pastor Leek, and, um, you know, George was just young and didn't know what he wanted to do. And then I met, uh, then we would go out to the Shepherds Conferences, and Tom and I would work on George a little bit for ministry, and George didn't know what he was going to do. And then finally, he, he heard that, you know, he finally, George got to finish college first before he go to seminary. He did, and then he went to seminary, and uh, of course, that's history. But there's a funny story that happened uh, to my wife and I when my wife was going through um, taking her biblical counseling master's at, uh, at the college there in uh, Santa Clarita. And we were, um, we were there for that for three weeks, and um, we didn't rent a car that time, so we were taking a shuttle from the college to Grace Community Church, 
And um, we're sitting on the, after the service at Grace Community Church. We're sitting uh, in the shuttle, and a woman gets in the shuttle from Australia, and she says, she, we're sitting, she's sitting in front of us, we're sitting, my wife and I are sitting behind her, and she says, I just heard just a wonderful Bible study by this George Lawson. And, and then, then she says, and he quoted from this guy named Joe Bobby. <laughs> George doesn't even know about this. And um, I thought that was so funny. The world is so small. You know, and uh, and then she turns around and says, "Oh, what's your name?" <laughs> I says, "I'm Joe Bobby," and she says, "You're kidding." <laughs> we ended up going out to lunch with her, and uh, it was just a just you just think, "Wow, this it's amazing how the Lord brings things together," and um, and I'm so happy that Pastor Lawson got a chance to get away. Pastors need a chance to get away. And because it's not an easy thing to be a pastor. When, when young guys come to me and say, you know what, if this doesn't work out, I think I'm going to go into the ministry. I pull them aside and say, no, you, know, you don't know what you're talking about. And the ministry is a hard place to be uh, today. It's always been, but today it seems like it's getting tougher. And so I just wanted to share that with you. So glad that uh, Pastor uh, Lawson has been asking me for a while to come and do something. And I just uh, had every excuse I can come up with. And then I was driving back from somewhere. I don't remember where. And uh, so he called me while I was driving. And he says, would you come preach for me? And I said, what, what are you thinking? You know? And uh, so he, um, I had no excuse. So I said, sure, I'll come. And I'm so glad uh, that my wife and I, Jane, will, will be able to, uh, are able to come and be with you guys today. Let's just pray. And uh, go before the Lord. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for this church and these people and its pastor. Lord, we know that in your sovereignty, you brought all this stuff together. That you raised up whole Bible church and Pastor Lee and Sue and their family to uh, lay the groundwork so George can understand and uh, ministry and salvation and what he needs to do and you brought him here now to establish this church and and i thank you lord for that because lord we know that all places in in the united states needs good churches sound churches biblical churches and i pray you continue to develop the leadership here and the people in this church that they would be strong in faith and become soldiers of jesus christ able to put on the whole armor of god to be able to stand up against everything Satan's going to throw at them, and he will. And I pray that they would just learn to lean upon you and love you. And I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now this morning, I'm, I'm going to actually be around the Bible a little bit, but I was preaching through the epistle of Jude, which Pastor Thomas Leake referred to as little book, big message. And he was right on because that statement undergirds how few words organized under the direction of the Holy Spirit could put forth such a powerful and revealing message for the warning of the true church of Jesus Christ. After I got done preaching through that epistle, there was one passage of scripture that piqued my curiosity. 
Now, if you'd like to turn there, Jude chapter 1, verse 21, for further investigation, and it is, I'm referring to Jude chapter 1, verse 21, where it says, keep yourselves in the love of God. This passage is most remarkable, and one I believe that needs to be understood and then lived out because in its context, it is the responsibility of every single Christian to keep themselves in the love of God. Matter of fact, I have come to understand that is this is the key to the Christian life. It's the key to overcome sin. It's the key to go and take another step. It's the key to persevere until the end, until you close your eyes in death. Because this is the only thing that's going to really keep us. Let me take a few moments to explain what this text does not mean. First, we are not told to keep ourselves in such a state as to make God love us. In other words, Christians are not called upon to bring themselves into a condition of life which will compel or constrain the love of God toward us. Secondly, we are not called upon in our life as a child of God to maintain a certain attitude in order to make God continue to love us. Not at all. We must rest upon the fact that God loves us, his children, with an unsought, undeserved, and unconditional love. And we cannot, in this life, put ourselves outside the love of God. However far you have drifted or wandered away from him or wounded him or grieved his spirit, you have not made him to cease to love you. You may have forgotten him, but God has never ceased to love you if you are a true child of God. Now, we, we must rest upon this fact as Christians and admit, admit it with conviction, and then we may proceed. So what then did Jude mean when he said, keep yourselves in the love of God? Well, quite simply, he meant this, that being in the love of God means you keep yourself from all that which is unlike him, from all that which violates love and which grieves the heart of God. So if indeed, according to Jude 1, verse 1, we are called of God, if indeed we are beloved of God, and if indeed we are being kept for Jesus Christ, then to us the word applies, keep yourselves in the love of God, which puts us in a sphere of personal responsibility. Now remember, this is, this is said in a book that is revealing false teaching. And so that is making a comparison between the results and results of false teaching, which is not love to God, and the end results of true biblical teaching, which is extreme love to God. See, that is the difference. That's always going to be the difference where Jesus says you'll know them by their love. So being in his love, do not, in other, in other words, be careless. 
but remember that you are responsible. The great gracious fact of the unsought, undeserved love of God into which you and I have been specifically brought as you've been called to a weighty responsibility. We live in a world in which we're surrounded by many seductive influences. We are in the love of God, and yet we live in an atmosphere in which unless we learn the art of discernment and watchfulness, unless we discover our responsibility and fill it, fulfill it according to God's will, we shall wander. Not away from his love, for he will still love us. But from the possibility of the realization and manifestation of his love shed abroad in our heart by the Spirit of God, which will express itself in holiness, in compassion, and in sacrificial service. So instead of the manifestation of the gracious glories of Christ's character shining through our life as we walk with Christ and as we are being conformed more and more to the image of Christ before we know it. These things which result from his love in which are all full of beauty according to his will will have lost their freshness because we did not keep ourselves in the love of God. And at that point, at that point, we begin the withering process. Now you say, well, if you have been a Christian for a while, maybe you have not experienced this. But if you have been a Christian for some time, you will experience this at some time or another, that Satan will design his attacks against us to remove us from this particular command that we have in Scripture. So can a Christian fall in their responsibility to keep themselves in the love of God? The answer to that question is yes. Definitely yes. And I fear, I fear the church of God is full of people who are not in the love of God as to their own conception or their transformed thinking as to their conduct, their obedient living, as to their character, their sanctified being. They have fallen not out of his love, but from fellowship as it fulfills his will, as it manifests his purpose, and as it accomplishes his work in the world. What am I speaking of? I'm speaking of the state of declining love. Love turned cold in the Christian's life. It is when there's, there's no passion or heart in your service anymore. Just cold orthodoxy. Just going through the motions, which is hypocrisy. And even the Lord diagnosed the hypocrisy in the leadership of that day where he says in Matthew, you hypocrites. Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, this people honors me with their lips, but what happens that their heart is far away from me. In vain they do worship me, teaching the doctrines and precepts of men. And that's what usually happens when we move away from the love of God. 
we end up thinking more like the world, more like we used to think. Now, can you imagine how it would feel if your husband or wife suddenly announced to you that they didn't love you anymore, yet still, they still plan to live with you and, and sleep with you and, and nothing would change? Well, likewise, you would never dream of telling the Lord you didn't love him like you once did. But you still plan to come to church. You still plan to serve. You still plan to sing and to give and to worship him. So in in a very real way, this message this morning is a warning to us to watch out for this. And it should be an encouragement to us also to make sure that we are keeping ourselves in the love of God. So how can a Christian maintain their responsibility to keep themselves in the love of God and not drift away or decline in love? Well, to answer that question, first we need to examine what declining love is and how it shows up in the life of a Christian. So there, I have kind of two major headings this morning in this message. The first one is this, declining love examined and exposed. Now, how are some things uh, in our life that we can determine whether we have declined in love? There was a man named Octavius Winslow who thought much about this subject, and he came up with several things that I thought I wanted to just share with you just at this point. He said that when God becomes less an object of fervent desire and holy delight and frequent contemplation, you may suspect the, cl- the clenching and divine love in your soul. Secondly, he says, when there is little inclination for communion with God and the throne of grace is sought as a duty rather than a privilege, in any case, Little fellowship is experienced, which is strong evidence of a decline of love in your soul. Also, when there is less holy obedience in our walk with God, we may ascertain that declining, uh, declining state of love is a reality in our life. And then he said also that a decay of, a decay of love to the saints of God is a strong evidence of a decay of love to God himself. And then he said, fifthly, when love to God declines, with it will decline an interest in the advancement of God's cause on the earth. That means a decline of a lively interest in the increase of Christ's kingdom, a decline in the diffusion of truth, a decline in the deepening of holiness in the church and the decline in the conversion and desire of the conversion of sinners. See, see the legacy of heaven and the inexhaustible riches of God's love belong to all of us who love Jesus Christ. And pursuing our relationship with Jesus Christ is the most important goal in the Christian life. But what if we drift from that noble goal? So this morning I want to look at an example in Scripture. And I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. 
And in Matthew chapter 16, we have here the example of Peter. In this passage of scripture, we see several observable, gradual movements away from the Lord that can be observed in the life of Peter. And we would do well, really, to take these five downward movements and put them up against our own life so that we may be rescued from backsliding and declining love. Well, here's the first downward movement in Matthew chapter 16 in verse number 21. It says there, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. See, Peter just made a grand pronouncement in verse 16 of this chapter, and that grand pronouncement was what? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That was given to him by God, but what he didn't get was that was going to be accomplished. The establishment of the church was going to be accomplished on suffering, the killing of Messiah, and then raising him from the dead. So Peter is still not grasping the needs for the Messiah to die. Because of this, a gradual, almost undetectable movement was happening away from the Lord. A kind of backsliding was taking place by Peter, and he was not ready for what was going to take place. He was not ready at all. So when Jesus began to talk about the cross... Peter began to be puzzled. He began to be disappointed and confused. He could not see how suffering could be the way to build the church or to establish Christ's kingdom. And if you notice in Matthew 16, verse 22, and verse 23, it says, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. And you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's interest. So you see here the first thing that was taking place is that he was berating God's wise method of establishing the church. So the first step in backsliding was when Peter dismissed the method of the cross Because he didn't comprehend nor connect the dots. He questioned the Lord's wise plan as if he was saying to the Lord, we'll come up with another way. This seems very messy. So let's kind of scrap this and find another way. And Jesus pointed that out as being earthly and demonic thinking. So, see, this is where Peter began to move away from the Lord. Second thing we find in Mark, let's just turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, and we see the same narrative being picked up about Peter, but a little bit more detail given there in Mark 14, verse number 27. What happened here is that Peter began to boast against the Lord's wisdom. 
And again, Jesus told his disciples that they would be offended and they would fall away from him because of his suffering and death. But Peter boasted that even if everyone falls away, I will not. I will remain loyal to you. Look at verse number 27 of Mark 14. And Jesus said to them, you shall all fall away because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. Verse 28, but after I have been raised, I will go ahead of the Gentiles. Of, ahead of you to Galilee, but Peter said to him, even though all may fall away, yet I will not. In verse 31, it's down to verse 31, Peter kept saying insistently, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all were saying the same thing also. So he questioned the master's knowledge even of himself. And what does what Jesus say in verse number 30, he says, and Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. Do we understand ourselves better than our Lord? No. We do not. It is usually the fearful, trembling soul. These are the ones who have no confidence in the flesh. And do not want to grieve their Lord. These are the ones who stay close to Christ. And of course in Mark 14, 50 it says, And they all left him and fled. So he boasted against the Lord's wisdom. A third thing that happened is he declined devotionally. Look at chapter 14 of Mark in verse 37 and 38. 37, it says, and he came and found them sleeping, and Peter, and, and, and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? And then down to verse number 41 of chapter 14, he says, and he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. And then in verse 37 of that uh, same Chapter Mark. It says, Simon, could you not keep watch for one hour? Keeping watch and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So, Christians, if if we only could be diligent in the area of watching and praying, how, how much more we could get done for the Lord if we only set our face toward Jesus more in prayer. You see that misunderstands the dealings uh, that he had with the Lord. The person no longer really um, is, once, once they stop watching and praying, they're declining already devotionally. They're moving away from the Lord. And because they move away from the Lord... Because they spend little time watching and praying, um, they have already independently uh, taken steps backwards. They're backsliding. So unless a lack of spiritual devotion to the Lord is replaced, what happens what is it's replaced by something else. There's never a vacuum. It's always they get replaced by activity, doing things, you or others or the culture, think more important. 
And that is happening in the church today. With all the stuff going on, we're thinking all these issues that are being placed upon the church today are the most important things. They are not the most important things. So what it does, it leads to depending on earthly wisdom to get things done. And when they came to arrest Jesus, what did Peter do? He took out a sword and cut off the ear of Malachus with the sword. Right? What, what did that show? It was, show? it was showing that he was taking things into his own hands. He was using worldly wisdom to defend the Lord Jesus Christ, who could have called legions of angels. So in other words, Peter wasn't ready for what he was getting into. But the Lord was making him ready. Jesus said to him, put away your sword in Matthew 26. For all that take up the sword shall perish by the sword. So worldly and fleshly wisdom will not be the instruments that win the war the Lord Jesus Christ has taken up. It will be the cross, it will be his death, it will be his resurrection, it will be the establishment of the church that continues to preach that message. So this step of backsliding usually follows backing off more from the Lord and following from a distance. If you notice in Mark chapter 14 in verse 54, a fourth thing that comes up is following the Lord afar off. It says here, Peter had followed him at a distance right in the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the officers and warming himself at the fire. So Peter scattered after the event that Jesus told him. He would not scatter. He did. He follows Jesus afar off and he begins to warm himself by the campfire of the world. And what happens next? Well, it has to go next. He begins to deny the Lord. All right? And how does he deny them? Well, look again in Mark 14, verse 66. In fact, Peter is right now in the basement of the house. He verbally disowns not just once, but three times the Lord. And each time he is insistent on backing away from the Lord. In verse number 66, a servant girl of the high priest, it says, and Peter uh, was below in the courtyard. One of the servant girls of the high priest, verse 67, seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and says, you also were with Jesus, the Nazarene. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you're talking about. And he went out of the porch and the rooster crowed. A second denial in verse 69 and 70, again the servant girl, and began once more to say to the bystander, this is one of them. But again he denied it, and after a little while the bystanders were again saying to Peter, surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean too. And of course, if the people don't get it after that, what do you start doing? Cursing. Right? Acting just like the world. Acting just like the corruption in your flesh. 
And look at verse 71 of Mark 14. It says, and he began to curse and swear. I do not know this man you are talking about. The only way to convince the world that you are no longer associated with Jesus Christ is to act just like them. That's the way you do it. Never bring up that you know the Lord. Right? If they go out and do things, you go do what they do. You don't influence them to do what you do. You never mention the gospel. Never bring a track. Right? Those are all signs that maybe your love for the Lord has not been kept where it should be. So Peter realized how far away he he fell from the Lord, and notice in Mark 14, verse 72, immediately a rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remark to him before the rooster, the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times, and what happens, he begins to weep. But in this weeping helps us to understand the way back from backsliding and declining love. The first thing is always remember. Remember means something happened in the past, and I need to go back there in my mind and, and pick out what that was. And in this case, what, it, what is it? It's his devotion and love for Christ. And of course, he, showing here that he wept is a sign of repentance. The inward thing going on in him, he was in turmoil when this happened between him and the Lord. And so the Bible tells us there, it gives us the sense that he repented. So when Peter was, was caught and confronted in his backsliding and his disobedience by the Lord Jesus Christ himself, his gracious Savior asked him only one question. Now this is what I'm saying. How important this issue in, is in all of our lives as Christians If Jesus has one question for you today, I believe it would be this one. And to see that question, let's go to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 21, verse 15 through 17. Now remember, John 21 is the last, near the last end of the book of the Gospel of John, and the Lord and the Gospel and the Apostle John brings this up. And he says in John chapter 21, verse number 15, so when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you what? Love me. Wait a minute, wait a minute. That's what Jesus asks? Just one question. Do you love me? He uses the word here, agapato, agapao, which really is the highest kind of love, the noblest kind of devotion to the Lord. It is love, the love of the will, not necessarily the emotion or feelings. It's the love that you choose to love, no matter what the other person is doing. And Jesus says, do you love me more than these? Do you supremely love me more than anyone else or any other thing, more than your own life, more than your own plans, more than your own desires, more than your own pleasures? 
And he said, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Of course, Peter doesn't use the word agapao there. He uses the word phileo. And phileo means it's a devotional-based uh, emotion of tender affection for the Lord. Jesus says to him, then tend my sheep." Peter, you're no longer a fisherman. You are a shepherd of God's sheep now. But notice in verse number 16 of John 21, he said to him a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Again, he uses the word agapao. And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, shepherd my sheep. Verse 17, he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Jesus now uses the word phileo. Jesus uses the word for the love that Peter used, questioning Peter's affection for him. All right, Peter, do you love me affectionately? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. So as was true for Peter, the depth of our love for Christ must be demonstrated by our obedience. The test of love is not emotion or sentiment. Ultimately, The proof of love is our obedience, which includes emotion and affection for the Lord. So when the Lord is the priority in our lives, we will be willing to obey him and thus prove our love for him. Jesus says, if you love me, what? You'll do what I say. He didn't say, do this and then love me. He says, if you love me, you willingly do it. That's what a Christian is. A Christian does it because they want to do it. They want to sing for the Lord. They want to witness for the Lord. They want to be in church and worship for the Lord. Even if no one else comes, I want to do it for the Lord. See, that's what a Christian is. That's what a Christian does. So loving the Lord Jesus Christ is what the Christian life is all about. This is the distinguishing mark of the Christian, of the child of God, love for the Lord Jesus Christ. It is what differentiates biblical Christianity from all the rest of the religious systems. It is what distinguishes the true disciple from all others who are false followers of Jesus Christ. So how important a matter and how serious a matter is Is it to love the Lord Jesus Christ, to keep yourself in the love of God? Well, to answer that question, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse number 22. The Apostle Paul, in this, his final message, his closing message in the Corinthian church, declared that souls doomed to judgment are cursed because they did not love the Lord. Look what it says in 1 Corinthians 16, 22. If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. And then it said Maranatha. Is this a serious matter? I believe it is the number one matter. 
this would be the question that Jesus would ask you. Do you love me? And of course, the second thing was, show me. Where do you love me? Have you given the cup of cold water to the stranger? When you were called upon for service, were you there? And were you there because you wanted to be there? Not because you had to be? I think there's nothing more discouraging in the ministry to see people do something because they have to. If, if you really feel like that, don't do it. If we don't do it because we love Christ, then we're doing it for the wrong reasons. See, declining in love toward God is the forerunner for hypocrisy and spiritual apathy. And what happens when that happens, it leads to becoming immersed in the cares of the world, falling victim to the culture, and turning to empty worldly pursuits. You know, CRT becomes more important. Gender pronouns become more important. Climate change becomes more important. Those things are not important at all. Because they do nothing to advance the kingdom of God. All that they do is divide and cause more hate to be propagated. We don't need that in the church. Oh, we have to address those issues, don't get me wrong. But we have to do it in a biblical way. In a way that brings us back to reality. Back to what is really important in our life. Because if we don't do that, it'll finally lead to compromise with evil. It will lead to corruption. It will lead to death. And finally, if that's not taken care of, uh, I wonder if the person was a Christian at all. Because these are not characteristics of real believers. See, every new plant that is planted has to be cultivated. And this is where we fail in this area. This is the tragedy of every backsliding Christian and every Christian declining in love to Jesus. The tragedy of the despair that may be in your heart is not perhaps that you have no love for the, the Lord Jesus. You do, if you're a believer. The Holy Spirit is still resident in your heart. The tragedy is love uncultivated. That's the tragedy. You know any time you plant anything, you can't just leave it. You've got to water it, right? You've got to put fertilizer in there. You've got to pluck the leaves off. You have to put it in the sun. You have to do, every, you have to do a lot of things to keep that thing growing. And then once it becomes strong, you have to do less to it. See, the tragedy of marriage ties dissolved by the separation or divorce is is a tragedy in and of itself, but not, not necessarily of lovelessness, but of uncultivated love. It is not that a man and a woman did not really love each other when they first got married. They wouldn't have gotten married if that was the case. They meant the world to each other. But the tragedy is that the love was seldom or never cultivated. So love in a marriage has to be cultivated. Or it's going to go bad. It's going to get cold. And then what happens when it gets cold? You start looking around. Yeah. You start looking around, right? But I tell you what, you keep your eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. 
you keep your mind being transformed by the word of God, you're not going to be looking around because you're going to be looking to Jesus. And if I sin against law is one thing, but if I sin against a person, that's personal. That's another thing. And if I know that when I sin, I sin personally against the Lord, I won't want to do it. Because how can I offend my Lord? How can I offend the one who died for me, who took the wrath of God for me, who demonstrated his love toward me by dying in my place? How can I do that? So these truths and doctrines must always be on our mind. See, are we seeking to cultivate a loving intimate relationship with our Lord? Are we really doing that? Are we taking that responsibility that Jude brings up and actually living out? See, most people in this world are not consumed, are are consumed with their own happiness. There are many people who say they are Christians, but they are just consumed with their own happiness. They don't pass the first test. Jesus said to his disciples, if you love father and mother more than me, you are not worthy of me. And he who loves son and daughter more than than me is not worthy of me. See, they just love themselves. They don't love God. But this is a very convicting. When you think about it yourself, where, where do I stand this morning? If the Lord were to come up to you and say, Do you love me? What would your answer be? And then if Jesus says, well, show me. What what would you be able to show him? If Jesus thought Peter needed to know that he loved him before he can serve, we also need to know that. Or we will serve for the wrong reasons. And if we serve for the wrong reasons, we're going to end up being troubled and not helpful. What does it say in Timothy? That in the latter days, men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure, and not lovers of God. Was he talking to the church in Timothy? I think he was. See, it has to start with us and it has to be kept by us because we're not going to get this anywhere else. See, they say the worst thing that could happen to a car engine is heat death. Your car gets so hot, it overheats and stops running. I don't know if you've ever been there, but I have. If you don't catch it soon enough and it happens frequently, it will severely compromise the health of your engine. But most vehicles are are equipped with a gauge, which monitors the temperature. And if your vehicle is exceedingly, if it's exceeding the normal temperature, then your temperature gauge will warn you. Or by blinking, or the needle will turn to the red danger zone. Well, in a very similar way. Scripture is our visible gauge. We use to see how are we doing how, how are we standing? And to see if things are really working properly in our Christian life. 
Are we keeping ourselves in the love of God? If not, if God is really not our highest desire, then we need to really check our spiritual gauge. We really do. Now, just to bring it to reality, let's turn our Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Because what is interesting about this passage of Scripture is that Jesus is talking to a church that is hardworking. It's a separated church. They couldn't bear evil. It's a pure church. It says in verse number two, they couldn't deal with unsound heretical teaching. They found apostles not to be apostles and dealt with them. That means they probably were a church. They were a church that were willing to do church discipline. They didn't tolerate evil men. They were an enduring church in verse 3. And you have persevered and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. And they are a church also which hated what, what God hated. And that, that is the immorality of the Nicolaitans. All right? It says, yet, you do not, you, you, yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. All right? Which I hate. So we can conclude these things, that Ephesus was a strong, biblically orthodox church with strong convictions, and she could not even yield the faith or play the traitor to her Lord. They excelled in discipline, in soundness of faith, in accuracy of, toward heretics, And a church may have all the wheels turning and the machinery of ministry moving at a steady rate, and yet something very important escapes their notice. And what is that? Well, the Lord gives us the condemnation of that church in verse number four. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. So a church can be orthodox in all their behaviors and ministries and yet lack love. This is really, this earthly love, proof of the new life that we have in Christ, can cool off in spite of doctrinal purity, in spite of knowing what you believe, but somehow inside not happening. You drifted. You've declined. I, you don't like it yourself, and that should be the first thing. I don't like this. I want to get back to where I came from. I want to get back to that passion I had, the love I had for hearing preaching, the love I had for serving the Lord, for serving people, for, for giving the gospel to the lost. I want to get back there. I don't want it to cool off. And this is no complaint of an enemy. We find in Revelation 2, this is a complaint of a dear wounded friend, and his name is Jesus Christ. It was Spurgeon who says, will we grieve Emmanuel, God with us? Will we grieve him whose heart was pierced for our redemption? 
Brothers and sisters, can you and I let Jesus find out our love is departing? That we are, we are ceasing to be zealous for his name. I don't want to be there. And I know neither do you. Because many things can be given to the throne of our heart. It can, our hearts can be crowded out by many affections other than God. So if we love, if our love has grown the least bit cold, then we have done a terrible wrong toward our best and closest friend. Can there be a greater grief in the church than that our Lord would find this against us? That we have left our first love. And God takes special notice of those, of the way and the manner in which people think of him and how they come and serve and worship him. He takes special notice of that because this is the notice he has for this church. Who wouldn't want to be a church like Ephesus? Maybe pastor, uh, your pastor is right there now, viewing the ruins of Ephesus. So how do we get back there? See, the next, the second major heading is declining love eliminated. We want to eliminate this. How do, how do we eliminate it? Well, Jesus gives us the answer. He gives us the answer. He tells us that the way to eliminate this particular thing, this is the counsel he gives, he prescribes in verse number five. Remember, again, same thing happened to Peter. It happens here in his counsel to the people. Remember from where you have fallen. So somewhere down the line, you could look and say, you know what, I was doing well there, but this happened. Or I was doing well there, and I, and I got a little bit wealthier. Or I was doing well there, and my job got awful important. Or I was doing well there, and somebody got sick and turned me in another direction. Or somebody in my family died, and my focus was no longer the Lord. All those things have to, will take place in all our lives, right? So this is one thing that we have to remember. We have to remember and look back when we first came to Christ and he saved us and the joy that we had and the love that we had for the Lord and his word and his people and the life that we began to live and the sin we began to throw off. And then we need to recall the past joys and the attitudes and the experiences when you wanted to know more about the Lord Jesus and his word. At one time, nothing could divert your attention from him. You were never weary of hearing of him and hearing from him. You were once zealous to serve him and tell everything you could. Tell him everything you could that was on your heart. And where once you were zealous to serve him and wanted to know more and more about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And perhaps now sermons are too long. Your Christian life is kind of dull. You have a spiritual appetite for being excited by novelties. Your ears are tickled by things that are not true. And once you never 
were displeased with the Lord, but because of sickness, a loss of job, a family problem, a disappointment in your life, you've lost interest and you have cooled off. How does that show up in the church? You come unprepared for worship. You're not ready to listen. You got all the cares of the world on your mind. You never really desire to pray, let alone pray with your brethren when the prayer meeting comes together. When asked to serve, always have an excuse. I want to do it, but I think this thing is more important. You serve more out of duty and obligation than love for the brethren and love for the Lord. You serve half-hearted. So we have to remember the beginning and compare that with your present state. See, for the Ephesian church, the way forward was going backward. So the way forward is from this declining love is to go back and remember. Get your mind thinking about these things. And then the Lord says in verse number five, you have to also repent. That's an imperative. Repent is a command here. The Lord's counsel is by way of a command. And here is the urgent of appeal for an instant change of attitude, of thinking, of conduct before it's too late. But you know what? You have to remember, what's, what's repentance? First of all, repentance includes you've got to name your sin. What's the sin here? Declining love. And then you've got to drop it. What does it say in Scripture? Let the wicked man forsake his way. And then you have to prove that you dropped it. Are you getting back to where you once were? And then you've got to replace your sin with righteous behavior. The new man wants to deal decisively with the flesh, repentance. And then once you repent, you have to repeat it. It says here, and do the deeds you did at first. And notice in verse number five of Revelation 2, notice it does not say repent and get back to your first love. It says repent and do the deed you did at first. Why? Because he's talking about that loving obedience. If you love me, you will do what I say. So this is practical repentance. For in doing the first works, you will prove that you have come back to your first love. Not do more things. Not get busier as a believer. Neither, none of us need to get busier. It refers to the quality of your love. Usually your service should be in line with your spiritual gift. God's given you a gift. Use it. And keep the boundaries around that so you don't get burnt out. And use it for the body. And use it because the Lord's given it to you and the Spirit of God bestowed it upon you. You have at least one. Use it. So the challenge the Lord gives in verse 5 also is he he gives a persuasion kind of challenge. He says in verse 5, He actually persuades the church with a threat 
or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. So you know what this is? This is the whole church at Ephesus. See, what happens about declining love, it infects the whole body. And if the whole body is infected with this sin of declining love, then the Lord has to, in a sense, give a hard persuasion. Unless you repent, he says, I will come and take the lampstand, remove your lampstand out of its place. That means he'll remove the influence of the church. You know who closes churches? Jesus does. You know what he does? Because the church is not a building. It's a group of people. And if a group of people meet together don't love the Lord, then why me? Why me? See, it's no longer a church. See, Christ can do no other. He walks amongst the churches, and he sees and evaluates how they're doing. The Lord's always walking amongst his church. He's always evaluating And really, Christ can do no other. Christ cannot allow his church to be apart from his love. He can't. If if the first love has been abandoned and there is no repentance, then the church shall be left in its own darkness. And this means the Lord may remove uh, the faithful ministers who bring the word of God and and move them to another sphere. It, it, It may mean... Also, it may include that the Lord will cut loose the usefulness uh, of that church preserving the truth. And it may mean further that the Lord will uh, take away the church and its existence altogether. There's a lot of churches actually last year that I visited that are now museums. Why is that? I'm sure at one time in these churches the gospel was preached, but now they're a museum. But then the Lord also persuades with the promise in verse 7. He says, and he, and notice how this is worded. He who has ear, an ear, let him hear. You know what this is? Real Christians listen. What do they listen to? They listen to the voice of the Lord. Like Samuel, I hear you, Lord. I hear what you're saying. I'm waiting. I'm waiting for the response. Jesus says to them, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And what is that? To him who overcomes. I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The Lord promises to those who continue to love him and serve him from their heart. He will bring them closer to the center, to the very tree of life that is in the presence of God. So you see, brethren, we need to heed the message that the Lord Jesus communicates to the churches so we remain a light-bearing community of obedient believers who keep themselves in the love of God. That's what we ought to be doing. See, that's why I believe that this message and this particular passage of Scripture in Jude is the most important one for a believer because it is our responsibility. To do that. So how's your spiritual gauge? Is it in the red zone? If it is, then evaluate yourself. 
Repent. Remember. Repent. Come back to the Lord. Remember from where you're fallen. It was Thomas Vincent who wrote a book, The True Christian, The True Christian Love to the Unseen Christ. And he gave nine things that we should always be practicing in our pursuit of Christ. He said, number one, be much in contemplation of Christ. That's our first priority, to meditate on the Lord. Secondly, to be much in the reading and the studying of Scripture. Thirdly, he said, to be much in prayer to God for this love. Then he says, fourthly, to be much, to get much faith. Those who have, it says in the word of God, and though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him. Much faith. And then it says, he said, fifthly, labor much of the spirit. Labor for much of the light, which the spirit of God illuminates when we are studying the word of God, when we are hearing preaching when he's giving us understanding of the word. And then labor, sixthly, for clear evidence of his love to you. And then he said, seventhly, get much hatred of sin. Much hatred of sin. Number eight, he said, associate yourself most with those that have most love for Christ. Get a bunch of people around you who love Jesus. And then you'll do the work, and you'll do it the right way. And then lastly, he said, be much in exercise of this love whereby it is increased and heightened in your life. As Paul told, uh, wrote in Thessalonians, he said there, and may the, the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people just as we also do for you. Because really, the greatest two commandments, to love the Lord thy God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, right? And then what's the second? Love your neighbor as yourself. They go together, but they're not reversed. First has to come first. The second has to come second. So if you make these scriptural principles part of your everyday routine, in every activity, every contact, every thought that you have, that Christ be your focus. And when you love Christ with all your heart, soul, and strength, God is glorified. And if God is glorified and the, the spirit of God is not quenched, then that church body can do amazing things. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. Thank you for your word. And Lord, for this particular point, of scripture that Lord I believe that all of us at some time will experience that if our heart this morning is cold and we've walked off far away from you Lord we know that your love hasn't decreased but our love has so Lord I pray you would bring us back help us to remember from where we've fallen Help us to repent and then have fruits of repentance. And then, Lord, enable us 
to stand up and not want to go back that way again. Because, Lord, we want to continue forward in this short life you've given us. Help us to persevere to the end. Faithful. Faithful people. Just loving Christ. Knowing that someday we're going to be in your presence. In fact, Lord, we know that you're in heaven interceding for us. You're in heaven preparing a place for us. You're in heaven ready to come back for us. Oh, Lord, I pray that we would always be in the love of God. Help us to keep that responsibility. And I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. You have been listening to Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events and where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserves all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating all printed media, CDs, and digital files.